Hello, I'm Oliver Culling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to my 70s TV childhood. We're the podcast which looks back at growing up in Britain during the 1970s. It was a time of economic decline, rampant inflation, clueless politicians mired in scandal, and general misery as the cost of living got out of control. Completely unlike Britain of today, of course. But it was a magical time for me and my generation, because that's when we were fortunate enough to be children. And children don't really notice what's going on until it directly affects them. You know, with things like power cuts. When the lights went off in the 1970s, it meant getting out the candles and pretending you were living in the olden days. So it was quite fun, really. On the other hand, the power cuts meant that we couldn't watch television, which wasn't such good news, as that was the constant accompaniment to my childhood years. And if you're a new listener, you probably worked it out already. It's the inspiration for this podcast. Watching television in the 1970s was an experience that unified families and our society in a way which nothing else has, either before or since. There wasn't that much of it. Three channels, which were not broadcasting all the time, and no way of watching TV programmes other than sitting down and watching whenever the shows were on. No video recording, no catch-up or streaming. If you missed it, you missed it. That doesn't sound very inspiring, does it? But for those of us who were there, watching on unreliable, often black and white TV sets, it was part of our shared experience, and, judging from the amount of feedback I get from listeners, I'm not the only one that thinks this. As always, I've had lots of messages in my digital postback. It's so humbling to me that so many of you choose to get in touch, It really makes creating the podcast worthwhile to hear your memories and to understand how the podcast has taken you back to childhood days. Our recent episode on Tomorrow's World, for example, seems to have struck a chord with many of you. Reasonably new listener Doug, one of our regular correspondents Nick, and Tom all got in touch with memories of different inventions and devices which featured in the show. There must have been so many things that were featured on the show but never made it past the conceptual stage. And that was all part of the excitement and fascination of the programme. Remember, if you'd like to share your memories of 1970s childhood and the TV shows which stick in your memory, you can do so on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com or you can leave a comment on our various social media accounts or you can simply email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com I would also a quick reminder that we've been nominated for the Best Film and TV Podcast category at the UK Independent Podcast Awards, which take place at the end of October. Thank you for all the kind messages you sent us on that, and please keep your fingers crossed for us on the big night itself. So, back to the 1970s. As children, none of us really appreciated or even understood really what our parents and other adults had to do. Life is a bit easier as a child where the biggest dilemmas are whether to watch BBC or ITV. And the big challenge of the day was to remember to take your PE kit into school on the right day for PE lessons. I don't remember ever being bored as a child. Okay, there's probably one exception to that. 
So when my mother took me and my sister to the cinema to watch The Tales of Beatrix Potter, which turned out not to be a gentle retelling of the animal-based tales, but several hours of ballet. I was literally bored to tears and kept asking whether we could go home during the film, to which came the reply that my mother had spent five shillings on coming and we had to stay to the end. To make matters worse, and this probably also shows my priorities in those days, I'd also miss Scooby-Doo. I've never really enjoyed ballet either since that unfortunate introduction. For adults in the 1970s, society was still pretty conventional. Despite the swinging 60s, most of our parents were still pretty hidebound by the deference which ran through British society. As we mentioned in our recent episode on Upstairs Downstairs, people generally knew their place. And this conventionality and this suffocating deference was nowhere more obvious than in the workplace. In big factories, there was clear demarcation, not only between the white-collar workers in the office and the blue-collar workers on the shop floor, but also between colleagues who did different jobs. The hierarchies and divisions in every workplace, whether it was between the apprentices learning a trade and the time-served tradesmen, or the office juniors and the middle managers, wherever it was, there were strict guidelines on how you behaved and how you got on. This led to lots of stereotypes, like the way people had to call their seniors sir. Weren't many who were called madam at that time. And the terrifying prospect of having to invite the boss and his wife around to dinner in order to have any chance of promotion. How many sitcom plots have revolved around the boss coming to dinner and some chaotic mishaps threatening to derail the whole evening and thus put pay to the potential promotion? But, as in the case of many stereotypes... I think there were elements of truth in these situations. The workplace in 1970s Britain was, well, let's face it, rather dull and full of deference and old-fashioned ways of working, which meant that some offices felt more like they were still in the 1950s. All of this was soon to change in the huge upheavals to the British economy and ways of working which were to come in the 1980s. But for many 1970s workers, it was a treadmill, from which there was nothing you could do to escape. Unless, of course, he did something totally unexpected and outrageous. of Reginald Perrin portrayed the claustrophobic and stultifying workplace of the 1970s and one man's efforts to break out. The show was first broadcast in 1976 and remains one of the BBC's most loved and cherished comedies. Just hearing that theme music immediately makes me see the iconic opening sequence where Reggie runs down a pebble beach, taking off all his clothes and swims out into the sea all of which is done in speeded-up motion. It was based on the novel The Death of Reginald Perrin, written by the author David Nobbs. Now, like many sitcom creators, Nobbs had originally been a writer for other shows and comedians. 
He was a writer on That Was The Week That Was in the 1960s, and a regular contributor to many of the great comedians of the day, like Kenneth Williams, Frankie Howard, the two Ronnies and Les Dawson. I read the original book when I was a teenager, and it was an extremely dark comedy, and very poignant, if not downright sad. Some of the plot lines in the book didn't make it onto the TV version, as they probably would have been too shocking, but I suggest you read it if you're a fan of the TV show. The show was yet another one, which I remember vividly, even if I was probably too young to have been watching it, given the adult nature of some of the storylines. The show was brilliantly scripted, impeccably produced, and had a stellar cast. And for most viewers, the thing that set it apart was the star turn of Leonard Rossiter in the title role of Reggie Perrin. Now, as we noted in our episode on CD sitcoms, Rossiter was already a big star in the UK after his appearances as Rigsby, the penny-pinching, lonely landlord in The Rising Damp. But this show helped to show his versatility as an actor, and I think it's one of his finest roles. So what was the show all about? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it plays upon the sheer boredom and pointlessness of certain elements of the workplace, and associated activities like daily commuting. Our hero, or anti-hero, Reginald Iolanthe Perrin, lives in a commuter suburb of London, on Coleridge Close, in a middle-class estate where all the roads are named after poets. He lives with his wife Elizabeth, played by Pauline Yates, and he works as a sales executive at Sunshine Desserts, a company which, well, sold desserts. The first episode sets the scene perfectly. It's a Tuesday, and we see Reggie sitting, having breakfast with his wife before leaving the house. As he walks out of the house, he shouts out Hippopotamus when thinking of his mother-in-law, a sign of things to come. He leaves Coleridge Close, walking down Wordsworth Avenue and the other poet-named streets, before getting onto the train. He sits in the same seat every day, opposite the same man, Hay fever. Have you got a tissue, Reggie? I shall have forgotten. I'm sorry, Peter, I haven't. Now you can uh, use my Venezuelan trade supplement. This sequence is repeated throughout the first series as various supplements from the Times newspaper are used by Reggie's travelling companion to blow his nose. He also races through the Times crossword, rather irritatingly for Reggie, because Reggie can never complete it. And he always grins across, looking at him and saying, Ah, easy today. Reggie arrives at the Sunshine Desserts office, from which letters keep falling off from the sign above the exit all the way during the series before going on to his office to be met by his secretary, Joan, played by Sue Nichols of rent ghost and, of course, Coronation Street fame. Morning, Joan. Morning, Mr Perrot. Uh, Eleven minutes late, staff difficulties at Hampton Wick. 
Leslie Woodcock from the Trifle Department, and he wants to talk to you about the farewell present for Doris Coldblow from Crumbles. Uh, how long has she been here? Three years, and she's a bitch. Oh, we sent MP. <laughs> right, uh, let's uh, start last night's letter, shall we, to... Uh... Jeff Maynard Reynolds from the summer. We thank you for your letter of the 7th. I'm sorry we're finding it inconvenient to change over to the Metzinger scale. Uh, let me assure you that many of our suppliers are already finding the new scale is the most realistic method of grading plums and green gauges. Uh, with the coming of metrication, I feel confident that they know the advent. Yes, advent of metrication. I feel confident that the bloody phone will ring all day. <laughs> Reggie is always 11 minutes late. And as the first series continues, the excuses become more bizarre. And I seem to remember once it was escaped Puma on the line at Chessington North. And at the same time as the explanations become more bizarre, his behaviour becomes more bizarre. The show is about a man having a midlife crisis. Reggie, at 46 years old, rails against his job, against the people he works with and against his family. He begins to fantasise about escaping from the daily grind and starts to daydream. Whilst he appears to love his wife, he becomes fixated on Joan, his secretary, and his behaviour starts to become more bizarre. This is a reflection on how pointless he feels his life is. And his other colleagues don't help, especially his boss. Send them in, Marion. Sit down, gentlemen. Chairs, CJ. Most embarrassing. I must complain to the makers. Well, gentlemen, it's all stations go on this exotic ISIS project. The pigeon woman has put in a pretty favourable report. I didn't get where I am today without knowing a favourable report when I read one. Great. Super. So the next thing to do is to make a final decision about our flavour. CJ, played by John Barron, is a fantastic comic creation. He's bombastic, self-opinionated and cruel and brought to life wonderfully by Baron. What became his catchphrase, I didn't get where I am today by whatever, became part of the common parlance, and even today is recognisable. Along with Reggie, CJ employed two junior managers, Tony Webster and David Harris-Jones, whose standard response to any suggestion by the boss was, great, super. In fact, the show introduced lots of sayings into the language, as well as these, Reggie's hapless brother-in-law, Jimmy, played by the great Geoffrey Palmer, was prone to turning up at Reggie and Elizabeth's house requesting help of one kind or another. Oh, no. I'll go. I don't care who it is. I'm not coming in. I'm sorry, we don't want any today, thank you. Reggie. Oh, Oh, Jimmy. Come in. Your brother. Oh, hello, Jimmy. How's the army? Mustn't grumble. Uh, drink, Jimmy. Ten past three, almost tea time. Whiskey, please. <laughs> Look, no beating about the bush. Bit of a cock-up on the catering front. Muddle over shopping. Fact is, right out of food. Just wondered if you'd got anything. Just bread or something. Pay, of course. I wouldn't hear to it, Jimmy. Oh, thanks. Decent of you. Wouldn't have asked any kiddies yelling, general hoo-ha. Bit of a cock-up over pay. Wifely ructions, storm cones hoisted. Oh, yes, of course. What would you like? There's some bacon and eggs, uh, Danish salami, Uh, um, half a loaf, uh, carrots, oranges, sprouts, um, two pork chops. uh, These are fillet steak. 
Yeah, that lot will do fine, thanks. <laughs> right. Like many of the shows we've remembered on the podcast, I personally think the first series was the best. It chronicled the descent into madness of a reasonable, middle-aged man, driven to despair by the hopelessness of his existence. It was extremely funny, but also quite troubling. As his sanity crumbled, Reggie took to seeing a hippopotamus every time his mother-in-law was mentioned, and he behaved more and more irrationally. In one episode, Elizabeth went away for the weekend, and Reggie decided to arrange an assignation with Joan, his secretary. However, the day was full of interruptions from Reggie's relatives, and nothing went any further. I seem to remember Joan ends up shinning down the drainpipe to escape the madhouse. And on another occasion, he invited some of his work colleagues to uh, Sunday lunch, I think it was, and proceeded to ply them with alcohol, which made them start to upset each other and reveal truths about their real personalities. Chaos ensues before Reggie throws open the dining room door to reveal there is no Sunday lunch. He tells his guests he's given a donation to Oxfam instead. Eventually things come to a head when Reggie drives to the British Fruit Association in a car which I seem to remember was shaped like a blancmange in order to deliver a speech. It is a disaster, as Reggie, both drunk and taking sedatives, rants and rambles before being dragged off stage. He then drives to the Dorset coast and, having contemplated suicide, he plans to fake his own death and start all over again. Now, this is pretty serious stuff to be included in a sitcom, and the show always trod a fine line between comedy, pathos, and tragedy. Leonard Roster and the strong cast made it all work really well, and doing a Reggie Perrin became a common term, especially given the disappearance of MP John Stonehouse, who did his own Reggie Perrin in Australia, at the same time as the first series was broadcast. By the end of the first series... Reggie had been through various assumed personalities and ended up back with his wife Elizabeth under the pseudonym of Martin Wellborn, claiming to be an old friend of Reggie's who's just returned from Brazil. He's got longer hair, a beard and has lost weight, so he's not immediately recognisable to his former colleagues and friends. He even attends his own memorial service and is quite disappointed that there aren't many people there. It turns out that Elizabeth knew exactly who he was straight away, as did his daughter, and he asks Elizabeth to marry him as Martin, and she does. The show was very well received, with both audiences and critics. The idea that an ordinary man could be driven to such a desperate act by the mundane nature of his life seemed to strike a chord. After the success of the first series, the BBC wanted more, and so commissioned a second and then a third series. The second and third series, as I mentioned earlier, didn't work quite as well as the first for me. David Nobbs wrote books for each of them, as Leonard Roster wanted the series to be based on a literary source, and, like so many things, the original chemistry and purpose was a bit diluted as the writer and cast attempted to reproduce the success of the first series. In series two, Reggie reveals his deception and is sacked from his job at Sunshine Desserts. He responds by setting up a new business – a shop called Grot, which sells useless objects like square hoops and the disgusting wine made by Tom, his rather hapless and hopeless son-in-law. Reggie is determined to behave absurdly in hopes that the business fails, but the odd products become highly sought after, and Grot becomes hugely successful, 
This causes a relapse in Reggie, and he starts seeing the hippopotamus again. He then decides to ruin the business by employing lots of useless people, including his aforementioned son-in-law Tom, brother-in-law Jimmy, some of his former Sunshine Dessert colleagues, including CJ, who he finds begging on the street, and an itinerant Irish labourer called Seamus, who he memorably meets in the pub. Have a drink with me. Ah, oh, it's very noisy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my name is same again. Please. My name is Perry, Reggie Perry, and I run the uh, the, the, the grot shops, the rubbish chain. Mm-hmm. Seamus Finnegan, labourer, the Klimtop Slip Relief Feeder Roll. Ah, yes, but you you weren't working today. Uh, no, sir. No. Oh, cheers. Oh, cheers, sir. No, your man gave me the day off on the count. I had an urgent appointment at Kempton Park. Ah, <laughs> how did you get on? My system failed me, sir. Oh, oh dear. What system is that? Well, I always back the grey. If there isn't a grey in the race, I back the sheepskin noseband. This man is ideal. Tell me, Seamus, have you ever worked in management at all? Uh, no, sir, no. My genius for management remains a secret between me and me maker. Good, good. <laughs> Had any experience at all in administration? Uh, no, sir, no. That's one fellow I never met. <laughs> <laughs> Seamus, I'd like to offer you a job starting at £10,000 a year, plus a company car, and, of course, luncheon vouchers. Would you be having a little bit of fun here with a simple Irish one in the box, or...? I'm offering you the job, Seamus. Oh, hell's bells, I better take it so before you change your mind. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go into the details later. I'll drop a line to, uh, to the Klimthorpe Slip uh, Relief Feeder Road. Road. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Right, uh, bye for now, then. Surely this team of incompetence will destroy the business. Well, of course not. They all prove to have hidden talents, and Grot becomes a hugely successful corporation. So, in a final act of desperation, Reggie decides to fire them all. Bringing them into his office one by one, he can't bring himself to fire Tom, or his brother-in-law Jimmy, or his former colleagues. So then calls Seamus into his office. (laughs) Sack him anyway, I hardly know him. Yes, come in. Oh, Seamus, come in, come in, sit down, Seamus. Thank you very much, sir. Well, how's the, uh, the reorganisation going? Oh, very well, sir. <laughs> Bit too well for you, I think. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, the way I reckon it is this, sir. When you employed me and all those other Egypts, you reckoned to bring the company to its knees. <laughs> and, uh, should I want to do a ridiculous thing like that? Well, I'm only a simple Irishman from the land of the bogs and the little people, sir. <laughs> but, uh I think you created this grot shop as a sort of joke to cock one last snook at society. But you found you created a monster that grew and grew, so you decided to destroy it. Dame failure, however, is a perverse mistress. Caught her and she hides shyly behind the skirts of life. To your amazement, you found that we were successful. So today, you decided to sack us. You couldn't sack your own... (laughs) You couldn't sack your own family when it came to it. And you couldn't sack your old friend, Doc Morrissey. Ah, but Seamus Finnegan, now there was a horse of a different colour. No trouble in sacking him. A simple, tongue-tied Irishman. (laughs) From the land of the bogs and the little people. Who never did anybody any harm. But built roads. And then got his one big chance to show that he was worth more than the back-breaking burden of toil in the evening of his dull old life. (laughs) (laughs) How 
would you like a 20% rise? <laughs> thank you very much, thank sir. Thank you, Seamus. Same journey, would you please? Thank you. Brilliant stuff. And the rest of the second and third series rather petered out and kept trying to retread the original ideas. But the first series was what ingrained the show on my memory. Leonard Rossiter was a brilliant character actor, and I don't think any other actor could have pulled off that tragicomic role so well. The writing of David Nobbs was perfect, and the supporting cast memorable. Who would have thought that a comedy about a man suffering a breakdown and faking his own death could be so fondly remembered, and, frankly, so funny? There was an unfortunate attempt to revive the show in 1996, the uh, legacy of Reginald Perrin. And that was without Leonard Roster, who died over ten years before. Most of the old cast were there, but without Reggie, it, it just didn't work. Some things are best left in the past, I think. There was also a 21st century revival starring Martin Clunes as Reggie. But again, I found myself asking, what was the point? The original series stands as a classic piece of British television and should be left alone. I'd love to hear your memories of Reggie Perrin. I know that many of you hold the show in high regard. Am I being too harsh on the second and third series? Let me know by leaving a comment at www.my70stvchildhood.com tweeting at 70stvchildhood leaving comments on our Facebook or YouTube sites or simply by dropping me an email oliver at my70stvchildhood.com We'll be back with our next quiz in a week's time and with our next regular episode in a fortnight. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Don't forget to like us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends all about the podcast. Take care and join me again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.